So welcome to another show. Uh, today's guest is Abigail Gimple, who's a special educator, an author, and an ADHD specialist. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here with you today. So you've got quite a, a few areas that, that you are quite specialist in, in in some regards. Do you just want to talk a little bit about how you got into those areas and really the background as to why you got into ADHD or why you got into writing a book, for example? So ADHD really got into me. That's It kind of invited me in. Uh, I started out as a uh, classroom teacher. I'm a special educator, so I was teaching in the regular classroom, but it was an inclusion classroom. So I had a good number of uh, students with ADHD symptoms, as well as other special needs. And uh, the ones with the ADHD symptoms were really the ones who presented the biggest challenge to me, because they were often the brightest and most curious and most interesting and love to have private conversations during recess when the other kids were running around with each other they would come bounding over to me to have uh, to tell me something curious or fun or cute and uh, and they loved those interactions but the second we got into the classroom it was like they were gone and uh, I, I couldn't get them to really participate or behave or get anything done in the classroom and it was a real shame for me because I saw their potential so instead of blaming them and their ADHD I just really got to work and said okay these guys can do it how can they do it am I running a classroom that is welcoming to their needs and I wasn't so I had to recreate that and restructure it and I created a program that really worked for them and put them at the center of the classroom. Those are the kids that are always asking the question, what does this have to do with me? Why do I have to know what you're teaching me? This is not going to help me in my life. So I started learning from them to start every lesson with making it relevant to all of my students. And that was my invitation to them. So that's how I began with really having to face this challenge. And then I became a mom. And uh, that's that's my biggest title, I think. And my children, one after the next, were were being diagnosed with ADHD. And that's when it became extremely personal. And I had to very much understand what was going on. I had never intended to write any books. And uh, uh, it's not even my main medium. I'm, I'm very pleased with the way the books came out. I'm very, very grateful for that. And I had excellent editing as well, but I enjoyed the process. The reason I wrote it was because what I was feeling as I really got into ADHD and started working with families and in classrooms, coaching teachers and parents, was that my program was was a well-tested, excellent program, but it wasn't accessible to anyone who couldn't afford private uh, training or private coaching. And uh, I felt like that that just is not fair because so many parents don't have the information they need. The only information they get is medicate your child and everything will be okay, which is just untrue. Uh, medication could be part of a program, but it's certainly not a completely inclusive program. And, and parents who couldn't afford it or couldn't get the information were left out in the dark. And I didn't like that as a parent when I felt like I wasn't getting all the information. So I wanted to provide a book that would give the full program and uh, a parent could just open it up. And for the price of a book, really know exactly how to proceed. And my second book, uh, which also I wasn't planning on writing, but I really love it, is, uh, is the informed consent book. It's the book that we should all be getting with that first prescription that the teacher that, that excuse me that the doctor gives us 
to diagnose our child and, and medicate. That all the information we need to know about ADHD, about every single medication, short-term, long-term, and with that information, and the information is really power, we would be able to make good decisions. I didn't have that information when I started medicating my children, and I'm so grateful to have it now. And I, I just want to share that with everybody. Well, to be fair, I wish you were my teacher because I was diagnosed, in inverted commas, with ADHD when I was a kid and I was ex expelled from school and uh, from private school. So as you sort of alluded to, I was on the intelligent side, but also on the curious and, and naughty and silly side, which didn't really transpire. So what, what do you think makes your approach different to the regular approach of blackboard, whiteboard, get this done, sit in silence, work on your own? What do you think makes your uh, sort of system different? Because one of the things you said that I think resonates with me is making it relevant to the kids. So I was very, not necessarily bored at school, but I was, it didn't really excite me to an extent. So it's you know, very boring subjects. But as you said, if you can make it relevant, is that is that the secret? So there's a couple of secrets and it took me a while to, to crack the code. And I would have loved to have you as my student. We would have had a great time in my classroom. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually still in touch with a couple of my students from way back when. And uh, they're doing great. I'm not taking the credit for it, but uh, it's, it's always nice to, to check in with them. Yeah. Uh, what, there's a couple of things. Relevance is huge. But there's a, a few things that really make that learning experience successful. First of all, the teacher, him or herself, really has to find out why the child is struggling. And just getting an answer like, oh, it's, it's his ADHD, well, that doesn't give me any information. That just lets me know what symptoms you're dealing with. Symptoms could be caused by so many things. So for one kid, it's a learning disability. For another kid, it's a high IQ. For another kid, it's that they're missing organizational skills. And uh, another kid is, is, is a dreamer, an artist, is someone who's kind of out there and, and wants to be outdoors exploring and is stuck inside and working against his or her own nature in the classroom and, and that's torture frankly for also those are just a couple of examples if you have that student who's sitting there with a constant runny nose well that might be giving us some details kids with with allergies and and skin issues and autoimmunity that's also giving me information so the first thing i want to do as a teacher is approach my job with some curiosity just like i would with a learning disability i'm never going to just give a blanket this child is learning disabled well, is it a hearing thing? Is it a reading thing? Is it a tactile issue? Is what, what does that mean? So that's where we begin, is by getting to know each student and figuring that out. Next, I want to include the child in the classroom, put the child at the center. And uh, I start every single lesson with, why is this relevant? Why should you care about this subject? Well, in most cases, the child doesn't care about that subject. So I'm not going to start teaching until I have hooked that child because now that child knows that this topic is so relevant and the conversation that this child had with his grandmother uh, two years ago exactly fits right here because this is what the grandmother was talking about. So I'm going to invite the students to give me personal experiences and I'm going to bring it 
right to their doorstep. And now they really want to learn about it because now it solves an issue that they have and it piques their interest. Besides for that, I want to be setting goals for my students and I want goals that have rewards. So I had, I, I used to give my students a contract at the beginning of the week. And the contract was not between me and their parents and their parents signing something. It was between me and them and they signed it. So every day, they knew exactly, I gave them, essentially, I gave them my lesson plans. And we would go through the day, they would know exactly what to expect. And they would see their, their minor goals. And if all the students at the end of the day had finished all of their goals, and I always give them permission to help each other with the goals and, and making it a nice cohesive classroom, if they all finished their goals, at the end of the day, it was going to be really worth it for them. We would have some kind of story hour or we'd go outside and have a soccer game together or football in your case. I'm sorry, I'm such an American. And uh, they would and you'd have something to look forward to at the end of every day. And at the end of every goal, there was a lot of cheering for finishing goals and a lot of honor in finishing, uh, as well as students being rewarded for asking and answering questions. So they wanted to be there because it was worth it for them. And finally, I always had an enrichment corner. And that was for a kid like you, way back in the day, curious, interested, clever. You finished what you had to do and now you're bored. So that, that corner, you can get up on your own, without asking my permission, go to that corner and choose something that fascinates you. You want to learn about the solar system. You want to do some kind of puzzle. You want to read a great story. It's all there in the corner for you waiting. And if you do your job well, then the reward you get is more fun information. So all of those things together kept my students humming happily. And I never demanded a quiet classroom. I wanted kids to be able to get up and walk around. So when I asked a question, I, I invited my students to stand up to answer, to stand up to ask. I wanted them getting up, sitting down. And I also had some kind of podium in the middle, in the corner of the classroom. Let's say a kid like you didn't like to sit for a long time. I don't like to sit for a long time. When I teach, I stand the whole time. But yet my students have to be glued to their chairs. That's a terrible idea. So I would give my students my students a choice. Do you want to sit? Well, if you want to sit, sure, carry on. You want to stand, take your books, take your notebook, take your pencil, go stand. It's available to you, but you stand quietly. Don't disturb the people around you. And if you could stand quietly, you could stand in every lesson. Be my guest. And the final cherry on top is that communication between teacher and student has to be positive. It has to be with compliments, just overflowing with pride for your students and, and compliments and a lot of clarity on the rules. Kids with ADHD symptoms need a tremendous amount of clarity. So put that all together and we would have had a fantastic time. I quite like your, your idea of once a student has finished, there's a corner that they can go to and read or do what's interesting to them. Because my mum had to come into school once to observe my behaviour. I didn't know she was there. She told me this later on um, in my life that they were writing questions on the on the board. By the time they'd finished finished writing the question, I'd already finished and was mm. running around the classroom helping others. Now, if you'd have offered me the chance to go into the corner and, and do something else, I would have taken that. And maybe stuff like that is something that can harness that ability. However, do you not feel that maybe in today's day and age, ADHD could be something that's 
overly diagnosed or that there's overlap disorders that uh, are classified as ADHD and that maybe with the smartphone addiction, the, the, the attention span of individuals is going down. Do you think all of that could collate into maybe an overdiagnosed um, uh, overdiagnosed population, or do you still think the numbers are, are accurate? So I have a completely different take on diagnosis for ADHD, and this is just from years of observing and my own kids being diagnosed as well. The diagnostic process is problematic because all it does is give us information on observable symptoms. So I, it's always funny to me when parents will come to me and say, oh, everything's clear to me now. I finally understand Johnny. He's been diagnosed with ADHD. And I say, well, you've seen those symptoms from the beginning. You could have opened up the DSM and made your own checklist. All the doctor did was confirm the symptoms you've been living with that you've been seeing forever. So what did the doctor do to add to your information that you already had? You could have gone ahead and diagnosed. He didn't add anything to your information. All he said was, yes, I can confirm that you have a sore throat. You know, this is an example. You go to the doctor with a sore throat and you let the doctor know that it hurts here and it hurts there. And at the end of the meeting, the doctor says, indeed, it's a sore throat. Well, are you better off? Do you have more information than you had beforehand? And, and the answer is obviously no. You don't have anything to work with. What they're not doing is is root cause analysis, and that's why is it underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed? That's not even relevant. The diagnosis is a problem. So, is are there more kids being diagnosed with ADHD today? Absolutely. Are there more kids walking around with smartphones? Everybody. So, it, the diagnosis is going up because those same symptoms that are produced from a smartphone. Uh, are also produced from a gut dysbiosis and are also produced from um, trauma and abuse and are also produced from an instant gratification personality. So therefore, there's a lot more reasons to be exhibiting those symptoms. And honestly, if you went to a medical doctor about this same sore throat and you went and you said to the doctor, it's hurting here and there, and then the doctor said, oh, it's strep. Well, don't you want to check? Did you want to take a swab of my throat and find out really what it is? No, no, no. I've seen it a hundred times. It's strep. I'm going to find another doctor when the doctor says that. That's not reliable to me. And I can't trust that. So the, the whole diagnosis is, is not trustworthy. And uh, and it, it's, in, in frankly, quite meaningless unless we know why. So do you, with, with the, obviously, diag talking about diagnosis for a minute and prescriptions, for example, ADHD is usually prescribed with drugs such as Adderall, Ritalin and Modafinil. What is your experience of those and the benefits or drawbacks that they can cause? Do they change the personality of the kid, for example? There are, it, it's a big giant topic. And that's why I wrote a full book about it because it, we, we as parents, teachers, therapists, everybody uh, needs to really understand this topic. Um, the medications that are used for for ADHD, first of all, they're not medication. A medication really is something that that uh, heals a person. A person with ADHD is not damaged to begin with. It's a healthy person, and according to all the studies so far, we have no conclusive evidence that there's something wrong with the person who's been diagnosed as brain. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, we have more evidence to the contrary. So giving these pills to a person that's diagnosed with ADHD is not there in order to right a wrong or fix some kind of, uh, you know, lacking of dopamine or neurotransmitters. Those, those are neural pathways. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. So it's not writing a wrong. And therefore, what's it doing? Well, it's it's trapping dopamine in the synapses for uh, a X amount of time and therefore making the person hyper-focused. So if you're a dreamer and you now are hyper-focused, you're going to get your job done. Or let's say you've been uh, through trauma or abuse and your mind is everywhere but the classroom because you're trying to get some help, it will straight jacket you and make you focus on what uh, the task in, in front of you. What it will not do is give you skills, not coping emotional skills and not actual skills of being a good student, of learning to be responsible, social skills. It cannot provide that. That's only provided through intervention, through therapy, through understanding what's going on for that child. So is the medication something I would never touch and never recommend? I wouldn't say that. And I'm definitely not a purist here. There are drawbacks to it. One major drawback is that as a person takes um, this medication, it actually changes the brain. It changes the structure of the brain, as do all psychiatric drugs. And therefore, I wouldn't recommend it for long-term use. Using uh, this, this this drug for a couple of months because a child is really struggling emotionally, socially, academically, everything's bad for him. So essentially, he's bleeding, you know, in, in all areas. So we're going to use the drug in order to put a plaster on him and stop the bleeding. But that can't be the long-term treatment plan. Because in the end, you keep this child on the medication. It's like keeping that bandage or plaster on for a long time. It, you start creating infection. And that's essentially what happens. Children at the beginning see that they can succeed and that'll build their self-esteem. But as time goes by and they become dependent on this pill, they say, wow, I can't do anything on my own. I'm a loser. I can't succeed without taking my daily pill. And I see that time after time. But having that small boost of showing a child that they can get things done and life can calm down a little bit so that they can start to focus might be good for some kids. I'm not a big medicator. I, my children were medicated and are no longer um, because what I see is long-term actually working on building skills is uh, much more powerful and long-lasting and uh, I haven't seen long-term great outcomes for just the medication use. But if, if the medication, for example, is taking your brain from scatterbrain into a, a, a purely focused brain, could that scatterbrain not be used to his, to an advantage, for, 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 um, for example? So I, I read somewhere, I don't know when this was, um, it was probably a couple of years back, where people with ADHD have certain jobs that they are very good at because they can multitask and their mind is everywhere. So a chef, for example, because they can focus on cooking this and um, the microwave and the oven and, and all these things together and not being just solely focused on one thing. Can you um, shed any light on that in terms of what you've observed from those who have had ADHD and what careers they've gone on to? Is it sort of high, um, fast-paced career without medication or have they then subsequently taken medication and fallen back into something a little bit more mundane? 
Yeah, so this is another reason why I don't love medicating because an ADHD, a person with an ADHD brain or what I call instant gratification brain is, is a healthy person with a healthy brain. And therefore we don't want to take this square peg and, and try vigorously to stuff it into the round hole. It doesn't work and it's not going to work full time or long term. The child, the person's going to suffer if you steal their personality away from them. And uh, since it's a healthy person, there there are many fields that uh, a person with an instant gratification kind of brain could go into. And since these people are, tend to be more curious, and it's funny because I I, I uh, often speak to podcasters, and often they have ADHD. And they're the most curious people on earth, and which is why these conversations are so much fun for me, because you guys really are entertaining and you want to know about everything. So I'll give you an example of my husband. He's in he's in alternative energy and he's all over the place. He can land in, in Rome in the morning, have a meeting there and then hop over to Barcelona and then land in London in, in, at night. And he's been able to keep pace and stay focused because he's all over the place. And he focuses best on that kind of life. So people that are in high tech, people who are, uh, are artists, who are musicians, we need that kind of talent and skill in our world. We cannot turn everybody into these um, you know, excellent students that are very good at taking instructions, very good at staying in the box, but are not the creative thinkers. We need all the types. And to shut down one of them, we really should do it at at, uh, at our own risk. It's a bad idea. And uh, But with just one caveat here, that's only one cause of ADHD symptoms. If it's that instant gratification personality, you're born with it. You're the person who is likes to be having fun right now and instant and, and uh, you know, doing things that are slightly more dangerous than everyone else and noticing everything around you and then not following through because it's no longer fun and interesting and drawing you in. So that healthy personality needs to learn how to follow through. That's just a skills building uh, program, which is absolutely doable. Uh, just like a person who's more shy needs a skill building program to help them come out of their shell. So that's one cause, but we also have to make sure that we're paying attention to other causes of ADHD and not ignoring it. So if a person's going through trauma or abuse and exhibiting those exact same symptoms, we the adults had better be paying attention and making sure we're not medicating away their problem and shutting them down because they're calling out to us for help. Or if someone has physiological issues, again, sticking them on a pill and uh, so now they're behaving well but they still have physiological issues and we haven't dealt with the underlying issue also very big mistake so before we would medicate anyone we'd want to find out what the underlying thing is and I, I don't recommend medicating someone who's so creative and so energetic I do recommend a very tight skills building program well I mean ADHD, which was previously called ADD, if I'm not mistaken, um, or are they just are they slightly different disorders? They, they've changed it. They've changed yeah. it. They they, yeah. they play around with it. So when I was at school, that was like a, a death diagnosis. You know, oh yeah, you're an idiot. You know, your mind can't concentrate. But there are people such as Richard Branson, as an example, who his self, um, he basically calls himself someone with ADHD, and look how successful he is. So 
can you shed some light on that to those that maybe do have ADHD to say, look, it's not a, a, a death warrant. You know, you can be successful, but you just need to find something that you're interested in to give you that hyper focus, something that's going to uh, challenge you and something that's maybe fast paced. I don't know. <laughs> you're the, You're the expert. Well, I, I would say that not only can you be successful, but you will be successful if you get the right help. Your brain is healthy and intact, and there's definitely no death sentence here. This is this is an incredible life sentence. And what you really have to be doing is learning how to uh, you know work with your emotional uh, internal language because there's there are more highs and lows, definitely on the emotional front and learning social skills, which is important. You know, some people with ADHD symptoms do great socially. The others are not quite sure how to navigate that. Medicating that is also a problem because it just delays the, the socializing problem. It doesn't, it does, you don't become a better socializer because now you're quieter uh, because you're, you're less curious. You're not interacting as much when you're on medication. So if, if social, if, if socializing is the issue, again, we need to help a person learn to socialize in a kind, gentle and smart way. But if you are able to build those skills, just like anybody else can build skills, someone with dyslexia, is that a death sentence? It certainly isn't. That person uh, can learn to read. And if they can't learn to read really, really quickly, they can get some help with that. They can have a secretary later on in life, but it's definitely not a death sentence. As a matter of fact, dyslexia, dyslexic thinking is a real gift. So it's a way of seeing the global picture and not getting lost in the details. So ADHD thinking is a real gift. And if you can either partner yourself up with someone who's really good at dotting the I's and crossing the T's, or you you develop those systems on your own, you're going to fly high. So in terms of the spectrum, then, where where does ADHD sit on that spectrum? What are some other associated disorders? Um, and what do you think some of the sort of similarities are between some of those disorders as well? So I like I said, I don't I don't assume that ADHD is a disorder. Uh, I assume that it is a list of symptoms that we have to look at. Yeah. Uh, I definitely see that it overlaps with learning disabilities. Uh, and a, a, high a high number of people with ADHD symptoms also struggle with learning disabilities. Definitely, definitely see that it overlaps with, uh, with social challenges, uh, which would touch upon, of course, the autism spectrum. Uh, and uh, autism also is a, is a curious uh, disorder. It's a devastating disorder, but it's, it's definitely curious in terms of what's going on for those kids and what's causing those symptoms as well. But there could be a misdiagnosis between autism and uh, and ADHD uh, symptoms. And, and so those definitely tend to cluster together. You we have also ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, another awful not uh, an awfully framed um, disorder kind of thing because it, the child is not disordered. There's something going on in the child's environment that's causing them to not be able to behave properly. And with, with most of these uh, things we call disorders, essentially it's a clash between a healthy child and their environment. Well, I've sort of got a two-part question. Do you think that um, 
these two things affect ADHD and the learning difficulty side, etc. IQ and diet. Do you think those two parts have an impact on an individual? Because I know when I was at school, if I had E numbers, I would be a bit crazy because obviously the gut is a second brain and all this sort of stuff. So are those two elements um, channels that change the outcome of ADHD for individuals? I spend an entire chapter of my book talking about diet. And I have uh, what's called the 30 day challenge, which is the the diet that I recommend to people that are struggling with ADHD symptoms and also have physiological indicators. And uh, that's important. It's not it's not necessarily going to be this unbelievable treatment for people who, who have, for example, not been born by C-sections and suffer from a lot of ear infections as a child, uh, running noses, uh, problems, uh, physiological problems. If, if you headaches, stomach aches, all those things, if those are things that you're struggling with, then the first place you want to go is to diet. And those those food colorings are a disaster for all of us. But there are some of us who respond very poorly, uh, very outwardly poorly to them. I think none of us should be eating them, but I, I very highly recommend going on that 30-day challenge and definitely cleaning your gut and getting your second brain focus, uh, focusing and functioning. And it's interesting that the dopamine that, 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 that doctors are always talking about is actually partially created by our gut bacteria. So really they should be looking at the gut when they're claiming that there's less dopamine. So let's get the gut working better and getting uh, the biggest nerve, uh, you know, supplying dopamine to the brain. Now, the second part you were asking about, you asked about diet. And what was the second one? What was the first one really? It was IQ. So does ah, IQ so have an indicator? So if someone's high in IQ and they have ADHD, does that give them a separate direction to someone who maybe is on the lower side and with they, those ADHD problems, do they manifest into different things? So IQ is definitely a predictor of just about all outcomes. You know, you have to, the intelli basic intelligence is, is extremely um, telling on and what's going to, how the person's going to turn out. What we found, this massive study that was done in 2017, was that kids with, ADHD symptoms tend to have overall higher IQs than the rest of the population. So that is interesting. Sorry, can you repeat that again? Sorry. Yeah, sure. That there's that like I was saying that this is a 2017 study, and I'm yeah. happy to send you the the link to it. But that I, I quoted in my book pretty pretty in detail. So the that study uh, indicates that kids with ADHD tend to have higher IQ than the rest of the population, okay. which would mean they're more intelligent and the classroom is not stimulating enough for them, plus the other symptoms that they're dealing with, that, that living on the edge symptoms and uh, the instant gratification part. So you combine the high intelligence with that cu high curiosity, and those kids are definitely more likely to land up with an ADHD diagnosis. And but probably then, the lower IQ would land up with a more of a spectrum diagnosis. So then if 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 that study proved, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, of course, um, that's part of part of the job essentially. But Absolutely. if but if if intelligence is, is shown to be higher in ADHD, then why is there an association of those with HD having learning difficulties? 
So learning difficulties is a great question. Learning difficulties and um, and IQ are not associated with each other. Okay. Okay. And uh, what we see with uh, with learning disabilities specifically, if if you would look at at uh, a psychoeducational evaluation. Where we find the learning disability is that the disparity between the IQ and a certain ability, let's say it's reading or math, the disparity is very large, meaning that this is a, an intelligent person and something doesn't make sense here because an, a person of that kind of intelligence should be able to understand the math or the reading or the science, whatever else they're supposed to be understanding. So therefore, people with learning disabilities are have the same IQ or higher than than anyone else. Okay, so if anyone wanted to find you and speak to you and, and find your books, where can people find those details? So the best way to get in touch with me directly is through my website, which is hyperhealing.org. And uh, people definitely like to uh, to schedule a 15 minute free session with me just to tell them, tell me their story, let me know about their child or themselves and the things that they're struggling with. And uh, my books are available on Amazon in audio and ebook, as well as in in paperback form. And you could you can check out my videos. I, I have a um a channel on YouTube, which is uh, called Hyper Healing Mom. So you can get tons of free information there. I've got a lot of blog posts on my website and I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and um, every once in a while on Twitter, but not so much. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it's a case of there's so many handles, aren't there, for, for, for individuals. Yeah. You've got the Instagram, you've got the websites, etc., which is why I've asked you to sort of reel them out. But what we will do is we'll leave the notes on the podcast description as well so it's easier for people to to get in touch with you have you got any final words of wisdom for for those listening uh with regards to the adhd maybe something we've not covered that you feel is very important for people to understand well maybe if i would speak directly to parents of children that were just diagnosed with adhd uh it's a very challenging experience to go through because suddenly you're being told there's something wrong with your child and that that hurts and it gets most parents pretty hysterical and my my advice as someone who's been through that is the first thing you have to do is calm yourself down your child is healthy your child is going to succeed the second thing you really have to do is take a deep dive and find out why. Don't accept this diagnosis as gospel. It's not. It's a suggestion. It's a direction. The doctor and you are both agreeing that these symptoms exist. And the next step is to just get to your curiosity place. Don't get angry at the child. Don't blame yourself. We, especially women, we tend to blame ourselves for everything that's going on around us. Some dads do it too, but the, the moms are the worst at that. So don't do that. Don't go there. Go to looking at your relationship with your child, the communication, his health, uh, her, her, what's going on in the school. Is, is there anything going on that you haven't really looked at deeply enough? And uh, have faith that your child's going to do well. And if you're an adult with ADHD symptoms, Nothing should be stop you from getting to where you want to go, but you do need help if you're addicted to screens, which most adults are nowadays. You need help for that addiction, just like you need help for any other addiction. Get a sponsor, join a group, have faith in yourself. You will go far if you're able to get the help you need. 
I mean, the first step is realizing that, isn't it? Though with anything, you need to first yeah. realize something before you then make the next step. So, so yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. I think you've had some valuable insights. I've definitely learned something, which is which is which is great. Um, so I hope people reach out to you. Definitely an expert on the subject. Um, and yeah, uh, as I said, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much.